Thank you, Brian. And I am uh, delighted to be here to speak this morning about ancient Chinese vases. In ancient China, about 3,000 years ago, talented Chinese artists created what's now called eggshell pottery, paper-thin porcelain vases that were delicately crafted with intricate designs. This was over a millennium before the birth of Christ, and the method used was itself a refinement of a process of creating pottery that had been around even longer in Chinese culture. What does God think of these pots and vases? Or what interest does God take in the even more ancient cave drawings recently discovered in Australia? What's God's basic attitude toward French Impressionist paintings and Wagner's operas? Or for that matter, how does he assess Korean wave TV dramas and the polyrhythmic dances of sub-Saharan Africa? In a spiritual memoir that he finished writing just before he died in 2002, the theologian ethicist Lewis Smead addressed these kinds of questions in an intriguing manner. In that book, Smeads describes his educational experiences during the 1940s, first as a student at Chicago's Moody Bible Institute and then at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. After a rather unhappy time in his studies at Moody, Smeads transferred to Calvin in the hope that he would find a broader liberal arts education more satisfying. He was not disappointed when he made the move. In this delightful passage, he tells about his first class session at Calvin College. It was a course in English composition. He said, in that class, the teacher introduced me. I'm going to quote him at length now. The teacher introduced me that day to a God the likes of whom I had never even heard about. A God who liked elegant, elegant sentences and was offended by dangling modifiers. Once you believe this, where can you stop? If the maker of the universe admired words well put together, think of how he must love sound thought well put together. And if he loves sound thinking, how he must love a Bach concerto. And if he loved a Bach concerto, think of how he prized, he prized any human effort to bring a foretaste, be it ever so small, of his kingdom of justice and peace and happiness to the victimized people of the world. In short, says Meads, I met the maker of the universe who loved the world he made and was dedicated to its redemption. I found the joy of the Lord not at a prayer meeting, but in English Composition 101. Now, it's important to note that Smeads is not only talking there about our obligation as Christians to appreciate the works of culture. He's going deeper to observe that God himself takes delight in the products and processes of human cultural activity. God cares about well-formed sentences and good music and just social arrangements. And we are called not only to honor those divine preferences in what we do as cultural agents, but we must also honor the maker of the universe by taking delight in such things when we happen upon them in our involvement in various spheres of cultural interaction. Nor is God's appreciation of, for example, art limited to the works of art produced by Christian artists. 
Smeeds leaves us in no doubt about whether God was taking delight in the pieces of pottery that were being produced 3,000 years ago by ancient Chinese craftsmen. And Smeeds insists that if God enjoys those works of art, so should we. Our own delight in those works of art should be seen as an exercise in the imitatio dei, the sharing in the creator's experiences of art appreciation. These are no minor matters for us to reflect upon. They, they certainly have not been minor concerns in my own pilgrimage. I was an English major as an undergraduate, and I found myself appreciating, in some cases intensely enjoying, well-written prose and poetry by non-Christian writers. Then I went on in my studies to graduate work in philosophy at, in a secular university environment, specializing in ethics and political thought, where I seldom decided for or against a specific viewpoint simply on the basis of whether the person setting it forth was a Christian. In all of this, I did find solid support in my positive evaluation of the work of non-Christians from people like John Calvin. Even though the great reformer had established himself as a defender of the doctrine of total depravity, he managed to express appreciation on many occasions for the contributions of, of non-Christian thinkers. Before his evangelical conversion, Calvin had studied law. And he never lost his respect for the ideas that he had gleaned from the writings of various Greek and Roman writers, especially Seneca. In his institutes, Calvin observed that there is, and I'm, this is his phrase, an admirable light of truth shining in the thoughts of pagan thinkers. And this means, he says that, and again I quote, the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, can still be clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. Indeed, he insisted, to refuse to accept the truth produced by such minds is, here's how he puts it, to dishonor the Spirit of God. That kind of affirmation of the intellectual contributions made by thinkers beyond the boundaries of the Christian community has been encouraging to me throughout my own career as a Christian scholar. It's pointed me to a larger perspective in which God approves of worthy ideas and cultural achievements wherever they show up. And if we grieve the spirit when we ignore the truth to be found in non-Christian writings, as Calvin says, surely we also grieve God when we refuse to acknowledge the presence of beauty and goodness beyond the boundaries of the Christian community. To be sure, there are many Christians who see these things very differently. There are quite sophisticated systems of thought that set forth perspectives on culture that differ significantly from the culture-affirming outlook generated by my own kind of reform perspective. I want to go over the basics of the case for the culture-affirming point of view here. And as much as possible, I want to ground the case directly in biblical thought, beginning at what I take to be a non-controversial starting point. And here it is, that God loves the whole creation. When it comes to spelling out the details of what God cares deeply about, of what God takes a loving delight in, it's important to be clear about the fact that it's not all about us, God's human creatures. 
Psalm 104 gives good evidence for this claim. It's a hymn to God's creating power and goodness, where there's almost no reference to human beings at all. The psalmist speaks of God stretching out the heavens as a tent and creating winds, fires, and the foundations of the earth. The psalmist goes into considerable detail about springs of water, wild animals, birds, grass, wine, oil, bread, trees, storms, goats, conies, and much more. And then two key confessions from the psalmist. O Lord, how manifold are your works, and may the Lord rejoice in his works. This psalm clearly echoes the creation account in Genesis. Well, there's actually quite a bit that happens between God and created reality before we human beings enter the scene. I think this is an important part of a real creationism. It doesn't get hung up on uh, six literal days, but uh, rather talks about the significance of the God's appreciation and delight in the non-human creation. Uh, God calls light into being, and then he pronounces, that's good. Then the separation of the sea from the dry land. And once again, that's good. The vegetation, that's good. Sun and moon, that's good. Living creatures, that's good. In all of that, there was quite a bit that God was rejoicing about in all his non-human created works well before human beings showed up. Even without us around, without our ability to exercise our uniquely human functions, even without us, God had much in which to take delight. G.K. Chesterton has a nice way of capturing the nature of God's appreciation for the non-human creation. The Lord, says Chesterton, takes a delight in things that is more like a child's delight than that of an adult. I'm going to quote Chesterton. Because children have abounding vitality, because they're in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. When our grandson, Peter, was about three or four years old, he would sit on my lap, and I, I'm not going to do it here, but I would make a face that he took delight in. And then he would say, do it again, Grandpa, and I'd do it again. And with the same enthusiasm, he'd say, do it again, Grandpa. And I'd say, I'd do it again. Finally, I get tired of it. Uh, but that, that delight and repetition of the child... And just as it says, the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately and has never gotten tired of making them. I love that passage. Well, whether Chesterton has it exactly right about the divine production of daisies, he certainly is capturing something important about God's delight in the non-human creation, as is evidence in the Genesis account as well as, as in Psalm 104. Again, when it comes to things that please the Lord, it's not all about us. God is glorified by plants and animals and rivers and mountains. It's not insignificant, I suggest, that after the wonderful song to the Lamb in Revelation 5, where the heavenly courts rejoice over the salvation of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, 
the seer reports yet another hymn. This one sung by the likes of panda bears and gophers and hawks and sea bass. He says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated upon the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Well, why make something of this here? The fact that God delights in and is glorified by the non-human creation. My main concern is to argue that the creator of the world has very broad interests. The Lord rejoices in all his works. God is really fond of daisies and chipmunks and oak trees. This means that we have to take this, bro- we have to take this broader agenda seriously. God's creating and redeeming work certainly focuses in a very special way on, on human beings. But it isn't all about us as individual human beings who have been redeemed through the work of the cross. As important as we are in God's renewing program, we fit into a much larger divine agenda. Put it a little differently, God has multiple purposes in the divine plan for both creation and redemption. When that creation came to experience the cursedness of a cosmic fallenness, God's plan for redemption centered on restoring at least a portion of humankind for obedience to God's original purposes so that men and women could contribute to the flourishing of a created reality in accordance with God's original designs. It's important to be clear about the fact, however, that the callings of human beings in both creation and redemption are not merely for maintenance functions. Humanity is called to engage in a complex creative project of its own, one that furthers God's own creative purposes. Now, I realize that I'm claiming something here that's not universally accepted in the Christian community. So I'll first explain the claim in terms set forth in my own Reformed theological tradition, and then I'll try to show that this theological perspective comports nicely with the larger the biblical witness. The theological idea of a cultural mandate has been especially prominent in the neo-Calvinist school of thought initiated by the 19th century theologians Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bovink. The idea is based on an interpretation of God's first words to the newly created human pair in Genesis 1:28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. This creational charge is seen as consisting of three closely related mandates. The be fruitful and multiply command is clearly related to procreation, have babies. God intended from the beginning that there would be not only two individual human beings, but a human race. The second command is the cultural mandate proper. It was the creator's intention that human beings fill the earth, not simply with more human beings, but with the process and processes and products of cultural activity. Then the third command, that the cultural formation would result in a stewardly having dominion, a caretaking of the good creation under the rule of God. Here's my favorite imaginative scenario for understanding the implementation of the filling command. 
On their first day together, Adam and Eve choose to designate one small area of the garden as their domestic space. Adam begins working at a level spot under a large shade tree, brushing away leaves and twigs with his hands. But Eve intervenes. Not that way, she says, and she finds a fallen tree branch and strips it of some of its smaller branches. Then she initiates with it a a sweeping motion. Here's how we'll clear the debris, she says. We'll call this a rake. I'll be the one who uses it today, and then after that we'll take turns every day clearing away any leaves and twigs that have fallen to the ground. In in that brief transaction, several projects of cultural formation have already taken place. Out of raw nature, Eve has fashioned a tool, a primitive piece of technology. She then gives the tool a name, rake, thus articulating a rudimentary labeling system. She's also outlined a pattern of social organization for distributing labor. We'll take turns, she says, as well as setting up a schedule today, tomorrow, the next day. And all of this, she has added several things to the primary garden environment that the creator had designed. She's begun to develop cultural formation, fashioning what H. Richard Niebuhr postulates as the artificial secondary environment that comprises the work of human culture. The production and maintenance of the patterns and products of cultural formation are, on this view of things, meant to be done in obedience to the will of the Creator. Our chief end, as the old catechism puts it, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But as a result of our fallenness, we rebel human beings distort and pervert cultural activity. This can be seen clearly as the Genesis story unfolds. In the pre-fallen state, technological innovation was a good thing. One of the ways in which human beings lived out their mandate to glorify God and all that they do. But when in Genesis 11, sinful people decided to build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens so as to make a name for ourselves, we have a clear example of technology gone awry. But this does not mean that the centrality of cultural formation has been in any way diminished by the entrance of sin into the world. Under fallen conditions, the question becomes one of cultural obedience versus cultural disobedience. Nor have the distortions been brought about by sin irreparably damaged the good creation. The situation is not one of, the, of a total obliteration, obliteration of God's original designs. To cite again the wonderful assessment of H. Richard Niebuhr, I quoted this last evening, under the conditions of fallenness, he says, culture is all corrupted order rather than order for corruption. It is perverted good and not evil. It is evil as perversion and not as badness of being. In the final analysis, of course, the argument comes down to the question of how this cultural, culture-affirming perspective comports with the larger biblical message. Does the Bible encourage us to participate actively in cultural activity, art, business, entertainment, sports, education, and much more? <clears throat> and even more, does the Bible not only call for an active cultural formation on the part of Christians, 
but does it also encourage Christians to learn from and take delight in what is going on beyond the scope of the believing community? Or has our fallen condition so corrupted God's original intentions for human life that apart from redemption, nothing good much can happen in the realm of culture? I set out in the 1970s to address this question directly by paying close attention to some biblical passages. I decided to focus specifically on verses dealing with the end time. Taking my initial hint in writing my book, When the Kings Come Marching In, from the final two chapters of the Bible, which point to God's glorious future, the one that God promises to us. In Revelation 21, the apostle is given a vision of the new heaven and a new earth, with the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And among the many details that the the apostle provides is this one, verse Chapter 21, 25, and 26. The kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. They shall bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. This passing mention is, in fact, an echoing of a similar reference in Isaiah chapter 60, where some more detail is provided. The ancient prophet foresees a transformed Jerusalem in which the glory of the Lord has risen. Into this city comes the wealth of the nations, accompanied by a progression of a procession of kings to the brightness of your risings. And the wealth of the nation includes camels from other countries, transporting precious minerals, flocks of sheep from what are now the Muslim lands also make their appearance, the much acclaimed woods from the trees of Lebanon used there to decorate pagan temples, will now be used to beautify the worship of the true God. The ships of Tarshish, vessels carrying the products and materials from many national cultures, will bring their cargo into the city. And all of this will now serve the purpose of bringing glory to the Lord. The greatest promise for our future as believers is, of course, the gathering in of followers of the Lamb, from many tribes and nations. But there also seems to be an important gathering in of the works of human culture, that which took place as cultural development outside of the boundaries of the believing community will also be claimed for the kingdom. This expectation is grounded in a fundamental biblical claim. All authority and expertise in the universe comes from a sovereign God who holds all people accountable for how they use his gifts. This includes the gifts that are on display in sculpture, music, painting, drama, scholarly production, family life, the rituals of our community life, as well as political governance and economic activity. It all belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. People may not know that they are exercising gifts for which they are accountable to the giver, but the Lord will conduct a final accounting. The wealth of the nations, the cultural honor and glory of the peoples of the earth, all of this will be gathered in at the end time, and God alone will be glorified on that day. Once we acknowledge the basic biblical claim that God is the sovereign ruler over all things, 
We can't help but also acknowledge the practical implications. God cares about art, athletics, education, business, politics, entertainment. All that has been accomplished in human history in promoting beauty, goodness, justice, stewardship, even that which has flourished in the context where the name of Jesus has not been lifted up. All of this will be revealed in the end time as counting toward the coming of the kingdom. To be sure, much of it will need a final cleansing, a purging of all that falls short of the full glorifying of God. Swords will be beaten into plowshares and and, uh, spears into pruning hooks. But it will be gathered in. And what God cares about in the broader human community, he also cares about in a special way in the efforts of those who acknowledge his rule in our own lives. The great missionary theologian Leslie Nobigan put it well, and I quote, We can commit ourselves without reserve to all the secular work our shared humanity requires of us, knowing that nothing that we do in itself is good enough to form part of that heavenly city's building, knowing that everything from our most secret prayers to our most public political acts is part of that sin-stained human nature that must go down into the valley of death and judgment. And yet knowing that as we offer it all up to the Father in the name of Christ and in the power of the Spirit, it is safe with Him. And purged in fire, it will find its place in the holy city at the end. Well, is that speculative? Maybe a little bit, but only a little bit. It's certainly enough to convince us that God cares deeply and widely about such things as goodness and beauty, which means that we must also care deeply about such things. My lecture last evening, I mentioned the fact that I engaged in a number of public dialogues with the late Mennonite theologian, John Howard Yoder, focusing on some significant disagreements between Reformed and Anabaptist perspectives on culture. Yoder and I also found something important to agree about, an agreement that motivated us to publish a jointly authored essay on the subject in the Journal of Religious Ethics. Our contention was that arguments between Reformed and Anabaptist thinkers on matters of cultural engagement are rightly understood as a dispute between members of the same theological family. During the time of the Reformation, Relations between the Anabaptists and the Calvinists were extremely rancorous, with harsh rhetoric moving in both directions. There's a really fine book on this by uh, Willem Balka called Calvin and the Anabaptist Radicals. It gives you all the harsh rhetoric you'd ever want to read. John Calvin himself clearly found the Anabaptists to be an irritating group of people. And his irritation had much to do with the ways in which the Anabaptists relentlessly accused the Calvinists of inconsistency on two matters that the Reformed community wanted to take credit for. The first matter was the Reformed emphasis on church discipline, noting that Calvin and his followers accused the Lutherans and Catholics of laxity on this matter. The Anabaptists boasted that they took discipline far more seriously than the Reformed. The second issue was the church's relationship to the larger culture. Anabaptists insisted on a kind of radical discipleship that called for clear patterns of separation from the cultural patterns of the larger society. 
And from that standpoint, they ridiculed the Calvinists for claiming to believe in total depravity while regularly finding patterns of accommodation with sinful culture. They especially singled out for criticism the Calvinist willingness to endorse and even to encourage an active involvement in the practices of civil government as particularly evident in the Calvinist willingness to use the sword in their political and military involvements. But even apart from the concern about overt violence, there's a very basic Anabaptist objection to what they saw as a Calvinist eagerness to compromise with the political patterns of a sinful culture. It was the polemics on these two points that led Yoder and myself to insist that the differences between the Reformed and the Anabaptists are about intra-family concerns. The two family members agree on the seriousness of what has traditionally been called the noetic effects of sin. They agree that the requirement of an enforced church discipline is integral to a robust ecclesiology. That Christian commitment entails a public submission to shared pattern of communal life as defined by biblical norms of discipleship. The arguments between the two family members has been over whether these two shared emphases, the serious effects of our fallenness on our human consciousness and the call to involvement in a community of radical disciples, whether these two shared emphases need to be supplemented by some theological softening factors. And Calvin did, in fact, introduce that kind of softening. I noted earlier that Calvin did see an admirable light of truth shining in the works of non-Christian thinkers. But Calvin could also speak very negatively about the products of the unregenerate mind. When Calvin credits the unredeemed with some grasp of the principles of civil fairness, for example, he quickly adds that even when the fallen human mind follows after truth, he says, it limps and staggers in doing so. In the lives of unbelievers, he says, the, the civic virtues, and I'm quoting, the virtues are so sullied that before God they lose all favor. So that anything in them, he says, anything in them that appears praiseworthy must be considered worthless. The seeming ambivalence in Calvin is what, what, what led one of the reformers' most, mostly sympathetic biographers, William Bousma, to posit a tension deep within Calvin's own psyche. So deep, in fact, that Bousma resorts to positing what he describes as two Calvins, coexisting uncomfortably within the same historical personage. One of those Calvins, Bousma labels the philosophical Calvin who favored a static orthodoxy and craved desperately for intelligibility, order, and certainty. The second John Calvin, though, was a rhetorician and a humanist who, these are Bousman's words, was flexible to the point of opportunism and a revolutionary in spite of himself. This was a Calvin who was inclined to celebrate the paradoxes and mystery at the heart of existence. Well, I'm not inclined to agree with Bousma's two Calvins depiction, but it certainly is the case that Calvin exhibited some ambivalence on the question of what gets produced by fallen and not redeemed human beings. In looking for Calvinist improvements on Calvin, I find the formulations of Abraham Kuyper quite helpful. 
in the way he went beyond Calvin to integrate the two seemingly diverse strands within a larger theological framework. Kuiper's doctrine of the antithesis recognized over against this, recognized that unredeemed cultural activity is directed by the spirit of rebellion, which stands in contrast, antithetical to those God-honoring patterns to which the redeemed are called. But Kuiper's doctrine of common grace spelled out the ways in which the rebellious motives of the, of the unredeemed are curbed and even on occasion guided in a direction that serves God's cultural goals. Thus, we can acknowledge the Spirit's workings in the broad human community. And again, I'm quoting Kuiper. Wherever civic virtue, a sense of domesticity, domesticity, natural love, the practice of human virtue, the improvement of the public conscience, integrity, mutual loyalty among people, and a feeling of piety leaven life. Again, I consider Kuiper to have improved upon Calvin by giving us some handles to better wrestle with the theological issues that Calvin only pointed to. Specifically, Kuiper not only gave us two helpful theological labels, antithesis and common grace, he went on to discuss in considerable detail the related theological issues associated with the handles. And while Kuiper does not completely reduce the tension between the two, he does help us to see more clearly in relationship, see them more clearly in relationship to each other. Both antithesis and common grace are theological tools of discernment for Christians. The antithesis idea helps us to see where the line between obedience and disobedience falls. But common grace tells us that the God whom Calvinists worship and serve is making some good things happen beyond the borders of the redeemed community. Not only can we learn much about the God of the Bible in other Christian communities, we, are, we can also discern that God's positive workings, we can also discern uh, God's positive workings in the thoughts and actions of, of non-Christians. We need both concepts then. To concentrate only on the antithesis is to risk condemning that which is good. But to attend only to common grace means that we run the risk of approving that which ought to be condemned. Last night I quoted David Teedy, former president of Luther Seminary. I like his point, so I'll quote it again. He says, the language of the streets is often uh, theologically significant more than the speakers know. If people will say, what in the hell is going on? They'll also say, what in heaven's name is going on? Uh, the what in the hell is going on? The hellishness is the antithesis in Kuiper's terms. The heaven's name is the common grace. And it's up to us to discern the difference between the two and expect that we'll see each one uh, regularly in human affairs. So the important task is to see how antithesis and common grace stand in relation to each other, to find the proper tension point between the two so that each is properly acknowledged in both theology and practice. And in my estimation, Kuiper did this well. The task of discerning the proper boundaries between the heavenly and the hellish in the larger world has never been an easy one. This is made especially difficult in our own day by the highly fragmented character of contemporary life. <clears throat> the image of fragmentation is 
especially pertinent for our, for our own present cultural context, given the phenomenon that is often associated with the idea that we're living in a postmodern era, namely the idea of fragmentation. In the 1930s, the well-known American poet Edna St. Vincent Millay wrote some lines in one of her sonnets that for many of us reads like a prophecy that is being fulfilled in our present day. She wrote this in 1939. Upon this age that never speaks its mind, this furtive age, this age endowed with power to wake the moon with footsteps, 1939. We live in an age that has the power to wake the moon with footsteps, to fit an oar into the rowlocks of the wind and find what swims before his prow, what swirls behind. Upon this gifted age, in its dark hour, there rains from the sky a meteoric shower of facts. I'm just getting bombarded with facts. They lie unquestioned and uncombined. Wisdom enough to leech us of our ill is daily spun, but there exists no loom to weave it into fabric. It certainly has a contemporary ring for something written in 1939. We regularly hear complaints these days about how scholarly disciplines have become so specialized that it's difficult to gain any overall integrated perspective on the pieces of knowledge that are available to us. I witnessed this in one university that I visited where members of the psych faculty told me that they had a difficult time understanding each other. Each of their areas of research was so specialized that they didn't know how to relate what they're studying to even some of their closest colleagues. So one colleague decided to start a program in integrated psychology and nobody could understand him either. Uh, to use the poet's phrase, they could find no loom for weaving things together. And we're all aware of the ways in which the results of our Google searches sit there in front of us on our computer screens, facts that are unquestioned and uncombined. What do we have to say to these fragmented patterns of contemporary life? One obvious thing that we have to say on the basis of the Bible's authority is that Edna St. Vincent Millay's prophecy taken literally is false. There does exist a loom to weave all facts into a single fabric. And indeed, there is someone who is the Lord of that loom. Not that it's always easy to see the actual weaving pattern produced by the divine weaver. The apostle does assure us of the coherence of the weaving in Colossians 1. Jesus Christ, he tells us, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. And then this in the next verse. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. That's certainly a reassuring proclamation. All things do hold together in Jesus Christ. But in the increasingly fragmented character of contemporary life, the challenge is effectively and faithfully to explore the meaning of the holding together dimension of the person and work of the divine son. A project that I'm convinced is both engaging and difficult, but we're not without some clues that can help us in the endeavor. 
But just after the apostle tells us that all things hold together in Jesus, he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus Christ is holding all things together. His integrative mission is a reality even where his, his authority is not acknowledged. God's intentions for the original creation have not been abandoned, nor have those in intentions been frustrated by the fragmentary features of contemporary life. We can proceed in the confidence that he shines in all that's fair, even when we do not know exactly how to account for the glimpses of light that we encounter in the darkness. But we do know this as a clear reality in our lives as believers. He is the head of the body of the church. The Savior whom we meet in our life together as his followers is also the Logos, the weaver, the one who holds it all together in regions well beyond the boundaries of our churchly life. As daughters and sons of the kingdom, then, we gather regularly to hear the word proclaimed, to fellowship with him at his table, and from there we can go forth into the larger world, the world beyond the boundaries of the place where we meet him directly in our life together as believers, in the confidence that the one whose embrace we have experienced in our worship is the same one who is holding together that which will someday be revealed when the kingdom arrives in its fullness. Thank you.